this copyright expired song is Taint Nobody's Business If I Do. I'll say that again. Taint Nobody's Business If I Do. There is no apostrophe in that first word. It is just T-A-I-N-T. They clearly didn't have the word taint back then. That's interesting. What happened in the last hundred years that made people say, we really need a word for that? Every time I see the small strip of skin between somebody's anus and genitals, I don't know how to express myself. Obviously, the taint is a much bigger part of our society these days. Taints are everywhere now. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting someone in the taint, as my grandmother used to say. Taint nobody's business if I do, as sung by Bessie Smith, as written by Clarence Williams. Clarence Williams is an interesting guy. He was born in Louisiana, made his way to New York, which, by the way, is the biography of everyone in jazz back then. Everyone was born in Louisiana, made their way to New York. Just goes to show how much geography plays a role in our lives. Clarence Williams made the trip at age 12. He ran away from home at age 12. That's the type of stuff people did back then. A lot of Americans are descended from somebody who got on a steamship, a transatlantic steamer at like age 9. They just went, bye, Mom. I'm immigrating to America. And she went, have fun. That's what people did back then. Clarence Williams made the big move at age 12 and had a great career in New York. A lot of times in jazz blues back then, it's like entering the mafia in that it just doesn't end well. Most likely ending for a jazz blues musician of that era, shot to death in a bordello. Not Clarence Williams. Lived a long life, had a lot of hits, sold a lot of songs, is buried in New York next to his wife, and this is interesting, is the grandfather of the guy who played Link on the Mod Squad. Hmm. Kind of an early case of someone amassing wealth that then allows their descendants to dick around in Hollywood during their 20s. The song you're listening to now surely paid for a lot of improv classes. A lot of the type of classes Henry Winkler teaches on the show Barry, a stage-fighting workshop with Carl Weathers, one assumes. Anyway, well done, Clarence Williams. Skipping sixth grade and starting your career was the right call. Hello. Welcome to the I Might Be Wrong podcast. I'm Jeff Maurer. This is the podcast component of my Substack, which is at imightberwrong.substack.com, which I hope you check out. It is presently completely free. The completely free part can't last forever, but enjoy these days, kids. And today's episode is called, Is There Any Guiding Principle about who to associate with. Neil Young has left Spotify. Other artists have followed him in leaving Spotify. This stuff happens all the time. Neil Young's just a very high-profile example, but all of us are frequently making decisions, even at the family level, about who to associate with, when do we say something, when do we just go along to get along. These are tough decisions. They happen frequently, and they seem to be happening more frequently. It's hard to tell, but it, it seems like it. And I've started to wonder... Are there any principles we can follow here? So this is an episode where I'm just sort of thinking out loud. It's called, Is There Any Guiding Principle About Who to Associate With? Subheading, Can I Articulate One? Can you? Can anybody? So here we go. I have been invited to appear 
on the Kid Touching Hour with the Clone of Joseph Goebbels. The Kid Touching Hour with the Clone of Joseph Goebbels is a popular podcast featuring, as the name suggests, the lab-grown genetic doppelganger of the infamous Nazi propagandist. Clone Goebbels, Clojota fans, in addition to being, you know, a Nazi, has quite, let's say, Foucauldian opinions on certain issues. Obviously, I find his views abhorrent. His opinions reflect the sickening lack of humanity that made Goebbels 1.0 one of the most reviled figures in human history. Also, he's not funny. It is fair to say that my entire participation in the political sphere is to stand against everything clone Joseph Goebbels represents. Counterpoint, his pod does some solid numbers. 5 million downloads a month, 1.2 million YouTube subscribers. That's legit. Those are good numbers. Those are red scare numbers. This is the real deal. I am trying to build an audience for this Substack. Maybe, hear me out here, maybe I could change his mind about a few things. The earned income tax credit, perhaps? Maybe zoning, Clojo's a total nimby. Anyway, yes, if I go on the show, things may be a little bit awkward around the Seder table with my in-laws next Passover, but if I use the podcast to plug the substack, and if I get off some solid zingers, you know, I think they'll understand. I mean, look, 5 million downloads a month. That's legit. End of bit. Who do we choose to associate with? Where do we draw the line? When do we say, I cannot be involved with that person? Is there any articulable principle? Or are we just going by feel? It has become common, very common, on the left to break ties with people seen as morally suspect. Neil Young, as I mentioned, in India Iree is another high-profile one, decided they could no longer share a platform with Joe Rogan. Patton Oswalt recently had to apologize for just doing a show with his old friend Dave Chappelle. The death of biologist E.O. Wilson. You maybe heard about this, maybe didn't, but oh, it's a whole fucking thing. It sparked a how dare you a thon that is probably going to burn for a couple months. These are only the most recent examples of a much larger trend. What are the rules here? Are there any rules? I honestly want to know. I have to live on this planet. And also, by the way, I have another decision to make, because in addition to the Clojo podcast, I have been invited to appear on Cannibalism Today with Ghislaine Maxwell, which also does solid numbers. Now, I used the Joseph Goebbels hypothetical. Joseph Goebbels hypothetical, not a terrible band name, by the way. I used the Joseph Goebbels hypothetical to establish that, look, we all have a limit for any ethical person there is something you will not do. There is some line you will not cross. Even if you are a super believer in the power of debate, and I'm pretty close to that, even then, if you really believe in the power of debate and you can imagine yourself eyeball to eyeball with the beta model of Joseph Goebbels arguing the proper placement of finno yurgics on the racial pyramid, even in that instance, you probably still have a limit somewhere. After all, would you pay for clone Joseph Goebbels' podcast? Would you work for it? And if you find yourself thinking, I don't know, what kind of benefits does he offer? I would argue that if you'd only work for clone Joseph Goebbels, if he offered medical, dental, two weeks paid vacation, and an on-site gym with a rock climbing wall, that is a nice feature, then 
you are tacitly admitting that the show has repugnant content and you are adjusting your demands accordingly. So you are making a moral judgment there. It just involves a rock climbing wall. Disassociating oneself from a Nazi podcast is an extreme example of a commonplace action. After all, we act on moral beliefs all the time. We recycle, we return lost items, we refrain from watching porn on airplanes. One guy I sat behind on a flight to Dallas last year being the notable exception. Much of the time, we do things, and the reason is because we believe that we should. We all make choices based on moral judgments, with the possible exception being that guy on that flight to Dallas, who, by the way, may be one of these people who thinks that humans are just meaningless collections of atoms smashing into each other, which is really a form of nihilism so extreme that it demands the obvious rejoinder, say what you will about the tenets of national socialism, at least it's an ethos. There is your Big Lebowski quote for the episode. At any rate, we are all in the moral judgment game. For better or for worse. We might wish that we weren't, but we are all in the moral judgment game. And it is often for better. Musicians refusing to play in South Africa hastened the end of apartheid. There is also an endless list of once acceptable practices from witch burning to dog fighting to taking Dr. Phil seriously that we used to think were fine but have withered under societal pressure. Some would argue, I would argue, that the evolution of societal norms is the main way progress is made. But, of course, moral judgments can also be bad. People burned witches back in the day because they thought it was the right thing to do. You gotta have the corn grow, right? Gotta burn a witch. Very recently, large numbers of people would send their kids to camps to try to pray the gay away. Didn't typically work. But they tried it. The impulse that causes someone to quote-unquote call out, in addition to sometimes being good, as I already described, could also, in an extreme context, cause a person to report a neighbor who seemed to just be going through the motions during the dear leader's birthday celebration. Taking action based on a belief does not, all by itself, have any moral valence. And by the way, if you do see me at the dear leader's birthday celebration, look, the man came down from heaven to lead our nation to glory. Do a fucking cartwheel, all right? He deserves at least that. Anyway, acting on a moral belief is neither good nor bad. If we knew with total certainty what was right and what was wrong, then if you think about it, there would actually be a moral imperative to act on your beliefs to the maximum extent possible. That is probably why, historically, people who have absolute moral certitude are typically some of the most vicious fucks who ever inhabited the planet. From Ramses II to Robespierre, nothing sends the body count through the stratosphere quite like a powerful guy who is convinced of the righteousness of his cause. Acting on your beliefs to an extreme extent is also, if you think about it, incompatible with pluralism. A society full of people acting with absolute moral conviction on every single item would be a society of endless conflict in which ideas are advanced not due to merit, but due to the power of the people who hold them, which, we should recognize, is basically how all human societies worked until about 10 minutes ago. All of which is to say, there are two ways to get these choices very wrong. The first is to be that nihilist watching porn on an airplane who says, 
moral behavior doesn't exist. And the second way to get these choices very wrong is to say, moral behavior does exist, and I will tell you what it is, and I will come up with a creative way to kill you if you disagree. Of course, unfortunately, identifying two extremes of behavior to be avoided, as I have just done, that doesn't bring us very close to a usable principle for who to associate with and who to cut off. And now I have to confess, I don't have that magic principle. In the headline, I sort of teased the possibility that maybe I did, but nope, I got nothing. I'm very sorry. If this makes you feel kind of like how you felt during the last episode of Game of Thrones, when they hinted that they might have some grand revelation and then what they delivered was a bunch of trite patter about how people like stories, I completely understand the anger. I can't believe they tried that ending. There's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. That line was spoken. That line was spoken. And all the characters went, oh, that's true. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> Nobody said, doesn't everything we went through disprove that? That dragon seemed pretty fucking powerful. Remember him? The dragon that melted an entire fucking city ten minutes ago seems arguably more powerful than fucking Mother Goose or whatever. What an interesting artifact that show is. Anyway, the point is, I don't have a simple ironclad principle to cut through the haze on the question of who to associate with and who to cut off. But there are a few things I think about that I'll call guidelines. I'm calling them guidelines, not principles, because they suck. If principles are whiskey, these are Miller 64, which is to say they are <laughs> ridiculously weak, but arguably better than nothing if there are no other options. So, here goes nothing. Guideline number one. My willingness to disassociate should rise and fall with the seriousness of the perceived violation. I used the Joseph Goebbels podcast example as an extreme hypothetical because in that scenario, the person is number one, a Nazi, number two, a pedophile, number three, a podcaster. That is the worst person imaginable. But if you dial down the odiousness in the hypothetical, eventually you're going to reach a point at which you have strong disagreements, but you don't believe the person should suffer Hester Prynne-style banishment, or at least you should reach that point. Demanding absolute agreement on all points is a trademark feature of cults, totalitarian dictatorships, and mommy message boards on Facebook. Guideline number two. The extent to which I am endorsing or condoning something by continuing a relationship depends on the nature of the relationship. We cannot live in a society in which I yell, you're murdering the planet at everyone who drives an SUV. The vast majority of daily interactions need to start with the assumption that we are all competent, respectable adults, which is obviously a polite lie that wouldn't survive a substantive interaction with basically anyone, but it is a necessary lie. This veil of ignorance is important, especially at work, by the way, which is a situation in which you have to pull together with several people who you wouldn't piss on if they were on fire in order to achieve the shared goal of doing some bullshit your boss asks you to do so you don't get fired. Now, there is a big difference 
between working with someone, as you have to do, and working for someone, which you don't have to do. Statistically, you probably work with several depraved sickos who deserve to be thrown down a mine shaft, but your work doesn't enable their depravity. In contrast, getting up every day and pouring your heart and soul into something that you find morally repugnant, that is entirely different. Also, personal relationships are a special category. Cutting off a friend as part of a moral stand, that, that is a big thing. That should not be done lightly. Cutting off a family member, that is so huge, it should maybe never be required. Just about the only exceptions to these rules are probably my brother is the Unabomber level stuff. He was turned in by his brother. That's about the only exception. That's obviously easy for me to say. My sister hates the woods and who uses physical mail these days anyway. My sister will never become the second Unabomber. But that's probably just about the only situation in which we should push people to cut off family members. Guideline number three. If I am condemning someone in order to inflict a social penalty, I should really have reason to believe that it actually will inflict a social penalty. Returning to the example where I yell at people for driving SUVs. That wouldn't work. And by the way, this is, I'm sorry to say, not totally a hypothetical. I briefly volunteered in college for an environmental group, briefly, that would... <laughs> we would accost people in parking lots and ask them if they knew how much gas their SUV was burning. It may not surprise you to learn that nobody ever responded to that with, Oh, thank you, young freak. Yelling mileage stats at me while I'm trying to buckle my fucking daughter into her car seat, that really changed my perspective. Thank you so much. That was never said. There was zero chance that we ever convinced anyone of anything, and probably more than a few people drove straight to their dealership and upgraded to an even larger SUV as a fuck you. There are several ways that an attempted condemnation can backfire. The Streisand effect, this is where you draw attention to something by demanding that people not look at it. The Streisand effect could bite you. You could turn the person into a martyr. The person's in-group could close ranks around them. People have built careers capitalizing on the free publicity supplied by moral outrage. Marilyn Manson did it in the 90s. Milo Yiannopoulos did it in the 2010s. North Korea's attempted banning of the 2014 Seth Rogen-James Franco movie The Interview is the only reason why I've seen it. <laughs> and that is probably also the only reason why anyone has ever seen it, or heard of it, or thought about it in any way whatsoever, ever. So those are my three guidelines, and to put those in context a little bit, a lot of my frustration with the left in recent years stems from the feeling that a lot of the efforts that are being made to render people untouchable are running badly afoul of these guidelines. And obviously these are my guidelines, not anybody else's, so it's just my perception here. But I feel like they're completely blowing up these guidelines in weird ways. The proportionality, for example, proportionality required by guideline one, that is disappearing as the bounds of what's acceptable grow ever more narrow. Minor infractions are treated as unforgivable sins. There have even been several attempts to treat widely held opinions as shocking violations of norms, which kind of goes to show how cloistered people are sometimes. Guideline number two, this is the one about how your association depends on the nature of the relationship. 
That guideline is violated when people demand the severing of all ties from an offending person, even when the ties are as shallow as signing the same open letter or as deep as a friendship that has lasted for decades. Guideline number three. This is the one where if you're denouncing somebody, it should actually be doing something positive. That guideline is ignored when people engage in public denunciations that are quite obviously exercises in virtue signaling and are extremely unlikely to achieve anything positive. And look, I admit, my guidelines are fuzzy, my guidelines are weak, they contain almost nothing but gray area, but to the extent that they provide any clarity at all, they help me understand why I feel that the way some people approach these decisions is incredibly counterproductive and, frankly, odd. And on the written version of this episode, which is up at imightbewrong.substack.com, I asked people, do you know of any principle that would apply here? Because I wanted to go into the comments section and find out, because I really want to know an answer to this question. I am desperate for a solution, quite frankly. I feel like I could get sucked in by one of those ads that's like, trainers hate him because he knows one simple trick that can easily sort out who to associate with and who to shun. I'm in the market for that. So in the comment section, people did have some good ideas. A lot of appeals to principles of charity, which I think is a good point. That is a well-known principle that is often ignored these days. Assume your opponents are arguing in good faith. Anyway, there's a discussion in the comments section. I encourage you to check it out. Of course, the reality is there simply might not be any clear principles here. A principle is not going to show up just because I want there to be one. Maybe it's ridiculous for me to think that there might be a principle here. Maybe all moral decisions are an irreducibly complex muddle and all of us are destined to flail helplessly against little understood forces like a fly caught in a spider web. Maybe, maybe, but then again, maybe not. And I really would like to have some guidelines before I need to make a call about appearing on another podcast I've been invited to, which is Dog Euthanasia Tonight with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And that's the episode. If you had asked me what's the probability I will end an episode with the phrase Dog Euthanasia Tonight with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, I would have said is no greater than 1 in 10. But there we are. It happened today. At any rate, I hope this podcast keeps the conversation going a little bit. I would like to have an answer to these questions. Also, I hope Neil Young and Joni Mitchell email me when they find this platform that has no bad ideas on it. I'm excited to check that out. Anyway, that is all for today's episode. I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now.